0: The Buddha's first teaching after his enlightenment is called setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion, or turning the wheel of the Dharma. And we know that this wheel of Dharma has rolled across India, across Asia, somehow it's crossed the oceans and it's rolled right into the forest refuge. This wheel of Dharma means something quite specific here. It means the teachings on the five spiritual faculties. When the Buddha set the wheel of the Dharma in motion, he taught us how to develop, how to understand, how to strengthen these five spiritual powers within us. So the first of them is called in Pali satha, and it's usually translated as faith, as confidence, as devotion. It literally means to place one's heart upon something. But what's so important about this spiritual power or faculty and what makes it the foundation for all of the others is that it engages and ignites our energy on this path of freedom, this path of awakening. It's that faith that we have, that confidence that we have, that actually sets us on the path. When we look at this quality in our minds, and try to understand how it's working in our minds, first we can understand why in the Abhidhamma faith and the other wholesome qualities are called beautiful qualities, or beautiful states, that's how they're listed in the Abhidhamma. And we get a sense of this when we look at the quality of faith or devotion in ourselves. Because what we find is that when this state, when this quality is present, it's what opens our minds and it opens our hearts to what is beyond our usual ego concerns and desires. It opens us to that which is beyond beyond our current level of understanding. It's sadha, or faith, which inspires and has inspired our initial foray into the Dharma, and it's also the quality which sustains our efforts, it's the quality which keeps us going. All of us here have very exceptionally strong seeds of Sada, of faith, within us. Even though you may not feel this all the time, you know, and perhaps at times it feels quite ordinary, the fact that you're here. Or maybe sometimes you feel even that your quality of confidence, your quality of faith is quite shaky. But from a worldly perspective, the fact that you're all here is quite extraordinary. How many people are there in the world who dedicate their free time to the discipline of renunciation? And really, for the time that you're here, you have renounced, you have given up most of the things that the world thinks is of value. You know, family and friends and the comforts of your own home, where your sense desires are easily fed, just the normal pleasures of daily life. Did you ever try to explain to a friend who has not been on retreat, exactly what it is you are going to be doing here? <laughs> it's very difficult to convey that because from the worldly perspective, well, I'm going to sit and I'm going to walk, and I'm going to watch my breath and watch my steps 16 hours a day. It doesn't sound like all that much fun. And sometimes it's not. <laughs> So, something, some very strong power has brought you here. And this is the power of faith. This is the power of confidence. That's that strong energy which sustains this commitment. Now, when we look back at sort of the beginning of our faith, we might see that it was inspired at first. By someone or something outside of ourselves. You know, maybe it was some books that we read, some texts that we read, or maybe, you know, hearing or reading of the Buddha or other great beings. Or even someone who is just very inspiring in our lives. You know, we feel or intuit, intuit certain qualities. There might be qualities of Great love or kindness or generosity or selflessness or wisdom or compassion. You know, we see or feel or intuit these qualities in these other beings or through these books. And we get the scent, we get the perfume of enlightenment. And we get a certain feel for it. And feeling these qualities in others becomes the source of our own aspirations. So this is the this is the beginning of faith for us. Somebody who so inspires this quality in people, you know in our current times uh, is the Dalai Lama. you know because he so embodies and transmits you know the feelings of compassion and wisdom and kindness. At different times I've gone to you know, several-day teachings of His Holiness. And while at times his talks are just wonderfully applicable you know, to a wide range of people, he also has this other side you know, of the great Tibetan scholar. He spent, I don't know how many years, studying the intricacies of Tibetan philosophy. And I've been at teachings where he was giving talks about the subtleties philosophic subtleties, I had no idea what he was talking about. You know, and I have some background in the teachings. I was thinking of people who had not. The amazing thing, though, is that it didn't matter. That just his being was imprinting, it felt like it was imprinting on me, these qualities. You know, the qualities of kindness, the qualities of compassion, just the quality of his energy. And so this becomes the source, So this becomes a transmission, you know, of great faith. In a more classic example, in the book, The Questions of King Melinda. King Melinda was a Greek, or a descendant of a Greek king from the time of when Alexander, or after the time Alexander the Great conquered a good part of Asia. King Melinda was a king in what's now, I think, Afghanistan, you know, so of Greek descent. And there was this famous Arhant monk, Nagasena. King Melinda was very interested in the Buddhist teachings. And so this book is a collection of questions and responses, the questions of King Melinda uh, to Nagasena. And it's it's a very interesting book to read because uh, there are a a lot of very clear Dharma points But Nagasena, in response to a question, is talking about the quality of faith. And he says, it's like being on the bank of a flooding river. And a whole group of people are there, and they're in confusion and chaos and fear, not knowing what to do. And someone comes along, some wise person, some wise woman, some wise man comes along assesses the situation, assesses it correctly with discernment, and finds the way across the flood. And then other people, having seen this person do it, gather up their courage, gather up the strength, and also cross the flood. So this is the power of faith when we're inspired by seeing another person who has crossed the flood and in. In this example, this shore, the shore where beings are lost in confusion and chaos, is our lives in samsara, our lives when we're lost in ignorance, when we're lost in all the mind movies of our distractions. Have you seen any of them in these last days? I mean, we're lost on this shore a lot. But somebody comes along and yet there is a way to the other shore, there is a way to freedom. Perhaps a stronger and more immediate cause for the arising of faith is our growing awareness to and opening to suffering, both the suffering in ourselves and the great suffering that's in the world. As we open to the suffering that's present either in ourselves or in the world, we're really faced with two alternatives. We either get lost in despair, lost in bewilderment, or we begin seeking a way of understanding. We begin seeking a way out of the suffering, seeking a release. And when Ajahn Chah, in his in a well-known summation of this, he said there are two kinds of suffering, that which leads to more suffering, and that which leads to the end of suffering. So we're at a juncture. As we open to this in our lives, in our own experience, we're at a juncture point. Which way do we go? Which path do we take? In times of pain, in times of anguish, do we drown in the feelings of despair, in the feelings of hopelessness? Or do we start the inquiry, the investigation, what is going on here? What is the nature of suffering? What is its cause? What is its end? What's the possibility of freedom here? In this way, suffering is a condition, can be a condition for faith. It motivates us to practice, it motivates us to look. It connects us with an understanding of karma. It can encourage us to renounce temporary pleasures for something that is more meaningful in our lives. It actually arouses, can arouse and nurture feelings of love and compassion for the suffering of others. Because we're in it, we feel it, we experience it. And we're not drowning in it. In all of our spiritual paths, there really was a great turning point. And that is the moment of the awakening of faith in the Dharma. Awakening of faith as a real power in our lives. The moment where we went from an intellectual appreciation, you know, thinking, oh yeah, this sounds right, to the realization, and we've all had this moment, you know, where, we, where we've come to the realization, I can do this. It's not just a conceptual understanding. We have that moment of turning, of understanding, yes, this is something I can do. Awakening is really possible. So this is the moment when the suffering, when the uncertainty, when the doubt all become the cause for what Joseph Campbell called, he described as the call to destiny we're no longer drowning in it is actually the seed of our awakening there's a poem by Mary Oliver which you're probably familiar with it's called the journey and there's just one line from it which I think so captures this moment when we realize that we can do it she wrote one day you finally knew what you had to do and began We've all begun. At first our faith is inspired, is often inspired by things outside of ourselves, whether it's books or teachers or the Buddha himself. But soon we discover that what we are really seeking, most deeply seeking, is within us. It's not outside. It's the recognition that the whole of the Dharma is to be found, as the Buddha described it, within this fathom-long body. Within this very mind and body, the whole of the Dharma is to be found. And we go at this moment of realization, we go from a sense of it's almost a kind of frantic searching. You know, when we're looking outside of ourselves, well, where is it? Where, where is relief? Where is peace to be found? And there's almost a kind of franticness to our search. To that moment when we realize it's all within us, there's this sense, often very immediate, of great relief even though the challenges are still there, we know where to look. Just before coming back here, I was away for about six weeks. I was teaching in California and then up in Alberta, Canada. And after the retreat in, outside of Calgary, we had about six days of hiking up in the mountains, uh, near Banff, and it's extraordinarily beautiful, spectacular mountains. We were doing a lot of hiking you know, up to the ridges and on the side of the mountain and then down to these mountain lakes. At one point, we'd been hiking for some hours. I we was sitting by a lake. And just as we sat down, there was this moment of panic. I had this moment of panic. Where are my sunglasses? These are like an expensive pair of sunglasses. And did not that moment when you think you've lost them? And I thought, oh, no, you know, somewhere two hours back on this mountain trail. And then one of the friends I was with saying, you're wearing them. <laughs> I was looking through them, even as I had this panic that I had lost them. And it was like a classic moment. You know, it's like there are Sufi tales about this. But the feeling, in that, you know, of going from that moment of panic to, uh, to the moment of relief, it's already here. It's not outside of ourselves. There's a writer called Wei Wu Wei who expressed it really well. He said, What you are looking for is what is looking. So it's always that coming back, that turning back. So as we recognize that the whole of the Dharma is within us, within this mind and body, not outside, our faith and confidence grow stronger as we practice and as we connect more and more deeply with the present moment's experience. We're really connecting with our own inner knowing. As you know, the, the literal translation of Vipassana, Vipassana practice is seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are. Well, as we practice this, this connection with things as they are, this quality of confidence, of faith in the moment, faith in the moment's experience gets very, very strong. You know, we see for ourselves just the very basics of our lives. What is a sensation? You know, different sensations arise in the body. What is it? Is it some big solid mass? And as we look more carefully, we see it's a continually changing phenomena. There's nothing substantial there. So we know this. This is not theory anymore. We know it from our own direct seeing. Now, what is a thought? This is an amazing uh, phenomenon, thought. When we don't know we're thinking, thoughts rule us. They're these dictators of our mind. And when we do know that we're thinking, there's nothing much there seen as completely empty, completely substantial, insubstantial. So we see this. Again, it's not, it's not theoretical. We are knowing from our connection in each moment. You know, what's the nature of emotion? What's the nature of awareness itself? This immediacy of knowing. is always here. It comes from the simple, uncontrived awareness. Now, in a moment of hearing, right now, in a moment of hearing, is there any doubt? Is there any confusion? Is there any bewilderment? No. It just illuminates this innate wakefulness of the mind that we always have access to, that we can always come back to. In one's life, only six things ever happen. This sight, this sound, this smell, this taste, this touch sensation, and there are objects of mind thoughts and emotions. So it's like just sitting back and listening to a six-string chamber orchestra. We can sit back and relax and just listen to the music. It's only one of these six things happening. As we relax into this immediacy of knowing, this innate wakefulness of the mind, we begin to recognize it more and more clearly. We begin to become familiar with it. We begin to trust it. Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogi, he wrote, I don't know if he wrote it, it was written, I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teaching of the Dharma and apparent phenomena are all the books one needs. It's all here. We just rest in this wakefulness, this immediacy of knowing, hearing and seeing and touching and sensing and thinking and feeling, and we just notice, we just note moment after moment. As our faith Or confidence in the present moment grows, we also begin to develop a faith or confidence in the whole direction of our life's journey. You know, and this journey is not one in time or space, it's really a journey of deepening understanding. We experience the growing possibilities of awakening, we have confidence in it, because we actually are awake more and more. So it's not just some unrealized hope or aspiration, we see as we practice that there are more and more moments when we're awake, when we're aware. And so this develops in us a sense of path, Connecting with the moment strengthens the quality of presence. Seeing the direction of growing understanding develops the sense of path. And this is a powerful combination. The combination of presence, of being grounded in the moment with the sense of path by which we navigate our, our journey of freedom. Seeing these two as complementary aspects of our journey, presence and path. In doing this, we see that there is not a conflict between having a goal and being in the present moment. You know, sometimes people, especially, you know, in recent times, have highlighted the dangers of goals. Well, we shouldn't have goals. We should just be in the present. And I think that's a limited understanding. It's true. We can get caught in ambition. We can get caught in expectation, which is unskillful. But if we let go of the goal of our aspiration, we really deprive ourselves of the very inspiration for being on the path in the first place. And we combine presence and path, you know, moments, being in the moment and goal all the time. The lunch bell rings. You get up from your seat. You're not just wandering aimlessly about. You know, you're not going off into the woods. You're heading to the dining room. There's a goal there. And yet, how do you get there? You get there step by step by step. You can be right in the moment, being guided by your aspiration. So why not have a big goal, the biggest goal? you know, of enlightenment, of freedom, of Buddhahood, whatever, whatever word we like to use, the way to it is still step by step by step, connecting with each moment. The quality of faith, of devotion, not only is strengthened by this sense of path and presence. It serves a very important function of keeping us from getting stuck along the way. Because it keeps us open to the unfolding mysteries of the Dharma, to what we don't yet understand. There have been so many times in my practice over the years when I've had the thought, now I've got it. You know, where there's a sudden insight, an opening, a connection, ah, this is it. You know, And then there's some new perspective or new insight, which comes often completely unexpectedly, which just furthers the opening. Years ago, when I was practicing in India, I had this experience on the roof of the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya. I was doing a lot of my intensive practice. And I was doing the walking meditation. And then in a moment, the whole subject-object dichotomy disappeared. There was just this effortless knowing unfolding. Nobody was there doing anything. I just felt, this is it, this is freedom. You know, it was this spontaneous awareness happening, with no one there. So I go, rushing off to Meningeji, my teacher, and all excited you know, about, this was a big thing, this was not a little thing, after you know, months and months and months of struggling. So I report this. <laughs> his, only, his only comment to me was, Joseph, don't recondition your mind. because already, even though the the experience was glorious and wonderful, I had already solidified, ah, this is it, this is freedom, this is whatever. Don't recondition your mind, don't hold on to anything. I don't know, maybe some of you remember from, I guess it was the 70s, somewhere back there, uh, the days of Est and Werner Erhard, you know, and all of that training and sort of the, the, the essence of the training was getting it. You know, you're, you're supposed to get it. And at one point he and Trungpa Rinpoche were having this dialogue and Trungpa Rinpoche had this wonderful line, he said, it isn't it. <laughs> so I think that's a great reminder that whatever it is, it isn't it. (laughs) In the sense we don't want to reify anything, even if it's enlightenment, (laughs) even if it's whatever. Don't reify, don't solidify, don't hold on to anything. But faith is really expressed and nurtured and nourished in the unknowing, not in drawing conclusions. Now I know that you've noticed, belief draws conclusions. People with strong beliefs have come to a lot of conclusions about things. Faith is not that quality at all. Faith is the quality just of openness. Let the mystery of the Dharma continue to unfold, that willingness to see. When we understand that faith is about our connection and our openness to the moment, and also about this direction of our life's journey, the journey of understanding, then we see that every single experience we have, whether it's on retreat or in the world, whether you're sitting or walking or moving about, that every single experience is part of the meaningful context of awakening. In any moment, we can ask ourselves, are we awake? Are we mindful? Are we present? Are we not present? Is this suffering? What is its cause? What is its end? And we see that our whole life is a journey of deepening understanding. There's nothing which is outside of the Dharma. In the texts, the quality of faith is likened to a magical gem which settles impurities in water. So you put this jam into you know, muddied water and it has the power to settle all the impurities. Well, when faith is there, when confidence is there, confidence in the moment, confidence in the path, we see that it settles doubt, it settles confusion, it settles the agitation of the mind and it creates an inner environment of clarity, of stillness, of beauty. An image for me which is really imprinted on my mind as an expression of this quality was when our teacher Deepama was at IMS, at the retreat center. Uh, this is many years ago now. And this, I'm sure all of you know she was this really wonderful, wonderful extraordinary being, uh, yogi you know, from India, watching her bow to the Buddha was the most amazing thing. It was like this amazing expression of the purity of faith because it felt to me, just in watching, it was, it was with this incredible grace of love bowing to love, of wisdom bowing to wisdom, there was no one there. you know. And in that emptiness of self, it was just faith, it was faith expressing itself, devotion expressing itself. It was a powerful experience just to watch this on a much less sublime level. Than that. Just when I think back to my early years of practice when there was just lots of struggle, all the usual struggles, you know, with the wandering mind and the restlessness and the agitation and the unhappiness and everything that comes, you know, at times in practice, I remember coming to this point within myself and it was really, as I say, much, much. more prosaic expression of faith, I remember telling myself, Joseph, surrender to the Dharma. Speaking to myself, your job is to sit and walk. That's all, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. And it was just a very simple reminder to myself, I'm not responsible for what happens give it all to the Dharma. I had to do my job and then everything follows. And that was a tremendous help. It took a huge pressure off of me of trying to manipulate the outcome. I knew what I had to do and I did it. So what are the obstacles to developing this faith, to strengthening it in ourselves. Because at times, we seem to have misplaced this magical gem. Even though we know it's there someplace, we may not remember where we put it. Well, we misplace it or lose sight of it in several ways. And one of the most common ones is when we remember some past experience, compare it to what's happening in the present, and then have some projection about it in the future. So, for example, if something was pleasant in the past, and it's not pleasant now, then we try to make it happen. How can I get back to this pleasant experience? If something was unpleasant in the past, We think, well, how can I avoid this arising again? In both cases, we're just in a place of struggle. In that moment, there's no faith. There's no faith in the moment. We're trying to hold on to something, to recreate something, to avoid something. And we find ourselves in a place of struggle rather than a place of acceptance. Many of you probably know this sad story from my earlier yogi years when I was in India and I went through this period of extraordinary bliss because my whole being, my whole mind body felt like a body of light. Every time I sit down. It was just a flow of light. I loved it. <laughs> there was no pain. There was my mind was concentrated. Then I had to leave India and I came back to the states and do some work to make some more money. Went back to India. I couldn't wait to get back, to get back my body of light. It wasn't there. <laughs> you know, it had become this body of twisted steel. It felt awful. My whole body felt you know, twisted and knotted. For two years, I spent two years trying to get back that experience. It was the most frustrating, difficult, suffering-producing two years of my practice. And I just share the story with you so you don't spend two years, or two months, or two weeks, or two days maybe two minutes, trying to get something back. It's not about that. It was only, and it took this incredibly long time for me to learn this lesson of just letting it go and being open to what was happening. It's such an important lesson. That's when the faith came back. In all those years of struggle, it wasn't faith, it wasn't confidence, it was struggle. Okay, so faith, devotion, confidence, you know, in the teachings of the Buddha, in the potential for our own awakening, this is the first of the spiritual faculties. I'm not going to go through all five. (laughs) But, I want to jump to the last, and just one little piece of the last. What faith needs to be balanced with, is the last of the spiritual faculties, which is wisdom. And one of the most frequent teachings of the Buddha, it's found in countless suttas, countless discourses, is the Buddha's teachings on the five aggregates as a description of what is really happening in our practice, in our experience, moment to moment. You know, it's his analysis of what it is that we call self, of how we create the sense of self or I. You know, and so just as a quick reminder, you know, we feel a sensation. That's, that's the aggregate in Pali rupa, you know, the physical elements there's a feeling associated with it, either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, it's the feeling aggregate. We recognize it, we pick out its distinguishing marks, this is the the aggregate of perception. in, In perception is the whole arena of concepts of memory, it's everything which allows us to recognize and distinguish between one object and the next. So there's rupa, the material elements, there's feeling, there's perception. The fourth aggregate is called sankhara, and it's all the many ways the mind is relating to the object, all all of the factors other than feeling and perception. So mindfulness, concentration, greed, aversion, restlessness, calm, all of these different mental factors are in this fourth aggregate. And the fifth is consciousness. And consciousness is defined as simply that which knows. So there's knowing, and these other four aggregates of material elements, feelings, perception, all of these other sankharas, mental factors, and consciousness. You know, and they come; they always arise together, but at different times, one or another of them is predominant. The reason the Buddha gave so much emphasis to this teaching is because it gives us a framework for understanding the selfless nature of this experience. And really the wisdom factor, the wisdom faculty of mind, is that which opens to or penetrates or understands that self, I mind, that all of those are concepts, that's not what's really happening. And so we begin to understand our experience through the template of the aggregates. And to the degree that we begin to understand and realize the selflessness, the empty flow of phenomena, this becomes a source of great blessings in our lives. So there are a series of discourses that the Buddha gave, where to my mind, in this very incisive way, the Buddha deconstructs the whole notion of self. I mean, it's discourses where, you know, if we are listening carefully, I think there's the potential for enlightenment, because he's just... He just deconstructs the whole notion that there's anyone there. And so I want to read just this is a very short discourse, and it's a series of questions and answers. So I'll give a little background to it. It's the story of a monk whose name was Anuradha. And you know, in the Buddhist time there were a lot of these wandering ascetics and and monks you know from many different sects and traditions so a group of wanderers came to the monk anuradha and they asked him a question and this is this is the question is formulated in typical indian philosophical format you know they were asking does the buddha exist after death or doesn't he or well, does he both exist and not exist, or does he neither exist nor exist? And you know, So it's going through that little tetragram of questions. And Anuradha replied, the Buddha is spoken of in ways other than this. Okay. So then these wanderers, they reviled Anuradha, they made fun of him. They said, this brother must be a novice, or if an elder, he must be an ignorant fool and Anuradha thought, well, how could I answer this in accordance with the truth? And how could he respond? So he went to the Buddha. Okay. So what follows is the dialogue. The Buddha, you know, Anuradha recounted this whole meeting to the Buddha, and so this is the Buddha's questioning of Anuradha. Now, as you listen, just see if you can imagine that it's actually the buddha asking you these questions you know so you're not you're not just it's not just some intellectual exercise here it's really these are the questions that the buddha asks and they're not hard you know you will know all the answers so you can relax but really take it in you know, take in the import of the questions Okay, so the Buddha asked Anuradha, and as you know, the Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata. That's how he referred to himself. So he asked Anuradha, is the body permanent or impermanent? Are feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness, are they permanent or impermanent? impermanent, O Lord. So then the Buddha asked him, what is impermanent? And it's all of these things. It's, It's the body and feelings and perceptions and mental activities and consciousness. Is what is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? You could say reliable or unreliable. unsatisfying, Bhante. Bhante is a word of respect. So Then the Buddha went on to ask, what is impermanent, unreliable, unsatisfying, what is of the nature to change? Remember, this is referring to everything. To body, feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness. It's everything in our experience. What is impermanent, unsatisfying? What is of the nature to change? Is it proper to regard that as, this is mine? This is myself. This is I. No Bhante. Okay, now the questions get a little more subtle. So stay attentive. Therefore, Anuradha, Do you regard the Tathagata's body as being the Tathagata? Do you take this body to be the Buddha, given that it's impermanent, unreliable, not-self? Surely not. Do you regard feelings, perceptions, mental activities, consciousness as being the Tathagata? Do you regard any one of these aggregates, any of these experiences, as being the Tathagata, as being the self? Surely not, Bhante. Do you regard the Tathagata as being something apart from these aggregates? Is the Tathagata, is the Buddha something other than these aggregates? No, Bhante this is the punchline, then, since in just this life the Tathāgata is not to be found, is not to be met with, he's not the aggregates, he's not something other than the aggregates, then since in just this life the Tathāgata is not met with in reality, is not to be found, Is it proper to say of him, he can be spoken of in some way after his death? He's not to be found in this very life. So to speak of him in some way after his death is meaningless. So Anuradha said, no Bhante, we can't speak of him in some way after his death, because he is not to be found even now. Well said, Anuradha. Both formally and now also, only this do I teach, what suffering is and what is its end. I love that line since in this very life the target is not to be found, since in this very life Joseph is not to be found, in this very life each one of us is not to be found. So we certainly don't have to worry about what happens to that being after death when we realize this, when we understand it. It's only the play of the aggregates. It's only the play of these changing elements. It's empty phenomena rolling on. Now, more than 2,500 years ago, the Buddha turned this great wheel of the Dharma and with the awakening power of both faith and wisdom. And we need both because faith without wisdom really can lead to blind belief, to dogmatism. Wisdom without faith can limit us to our own as yet incomplete understanding. You know, if we have a certain wisdom, but we don't have the faith that keeps us open to what we don't yet understand, it's called, you know, attachment to emptiness. An incomplete understanding of it. So we need both, as both this faith and wisdom are developed and strengthened in our practice. It brings our minds and it brings our lives into alignment with our highest aspirations. And this is our practice. This is what we do. This is our connection to presence and path. So I'd like to close with this one teaching from one of the great Tibetan masses, Tsongkhapa. He said, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal and make use of every day and night to achieve it. back after six weeks or so of being away was when I said let's sit for a few minutes and then during the sitting I thought a few minutes could easily stretch into an hour in this hole or two. I have tremendous mudita uh, for you know, your opportunity to practice. This is such a precious place and and situation for deepening faith, deepening wisdom.